So have you noticed how unpopular it has become in our culture to suggest that human beings have any kind of limits? The second you start talking about limits or that we can do something or we can't do something, there's just an immediate reaction to that. If you're paying attention to culture, TV, music, movies, and particularly ad campaigns, there's this undercurrent in our culture that says there are literally no limits to who I can be or what I can achieve. If you can simply dream it, you can do it. If you can feel it, then you should be able to be it. And this undercurrent of limit phobia um, is skeptical at best and often cynical at worst at just the very notion of limits. You can bring reasonable facts, you can bring um, a reasonable expectations, but none of those things seem to matter and they're often disregarded because we just have an outright opposition to limits. And this morning we're studying a theological concept called limited atonement and, you, and we hear that word limited and all of a sudden that undercurrent of this opposition towards limits comes into play and I think it's partly why when people hear the term limited atonement we're just skeptical about it. We think well how, how could it be that the perfect atonement of Christ could be limited in any kind of way? And what we're going to see this morning is that limited atonement teaches that Christ died only for the sins of the elect. In other words, that the atonement of Christ in, in, in its application is not for everyone, but it's limited to those to whom Jesus died for. And as we think about this conversation around, the limit, uh, around limited atonement, people often ask, how could, Pastor, how could the perfect atonement of Christ be limited in any sense? This morning we're continuing in our series, Christmas and the Doctrines of Grace, as we take more of a theological approach to the season of Christmas. And what we're doing is looking at the words of the angel that told Joseph in Matthew chapter 20 to name the child Jesus. Why? For he would save his people from their sins. See, Christmas always was looking forward to the cross. Always looking towards that moment when Jesus would actually save his people from their sins. And so it, it begs the question, how? If that's why Jesus came, our sermon series is looking at how. How exactly does God save us from our sins? And this morning, we come to this third point, the doctrine of limited atonement. It's also known as particular redemption, or as we like to call it, perfect atonement. And this biblical doctrine answers this question. What was the original purpose of God in sending Christ into the world to die on the cross? Was the Father's purpose to send the Son to die to make salvation possible? That's one view. Or did God have a sovereign plan in which according to the riches of his mercy and grace, he designed the atonement to ensure the definitive and perfect salvation of his people, not merely to make it possible or to present the offer. Kevin DeYoung helps us frame the issue. He says this, the doctrine of particular redemption 
or limited atonement or perfect atonement like we call it, is worth defining and defending because it gets to the heart of the gospel. Should we say Christ died so that sinners might come to him or that Christ died for sinners? Did Christ's work on the cross make it possible for sinners to come to God? Or did Christ's work on the cross actually reconcile sinners to God? In other words, does the death of Christ make us savable or does it make us saved? And this is a really important question. And so today, and as we answer that question, first we're going to define this term so that we get a good working understanding of what we're talking about. Then we're going to defend it from Scripture. Just like we have over the last several weeks, we're going to go Scripture after Scripture to show you that this is not merely some logical construct. This is birthed from the Scriptures themselves. Because at the end of the day, everything we believe as Christians must be rooted in and grounded in and defended in Scripture. And then finally, we'll apply it to our lives because these are not just theological abstractions. This is not just for the seminarians. This is not just for pastors. But every one of us needs to know and understand these truths because it gets at the heart of the gospel. And further, it, we're meant to live these things out, meaning the way we live our lives every single day should be impacted by what Christ did for us. So let's start together with a definition. Now remember, as we've talked about in this series, uh, the, the doctrines of grace are biblical. But at the same time, they're also logical. And here's what I mean by that. Not merely logical in that they make reasonable sense. Sometimes we say things are logical because it makes sense. But there's actually a more, um, a more particular way to speak about things being logical. More of a technical way in that they follow a progression of necessity. Just, just out of curiosity, did anybody study philosophy in school? Anybody, like, take an intro to logic? I see a, you know. All right. But it's, it's really important when we think about, like, A follows B, then follows C. It's how we process argument and logic that something leads to another thing that logically necessitates something else. And that's what's going on in these doctrines of grace. So in the first week, we looked at the doctrine of total depravity, which is looking at the problem, humanity's deepest and most profound problem. Because that's what Jesus is coming to solve. And so we looked at what is this problem, total depravity. We said that sin has corrupted every part of humanity to the extent that apart from divine intervention, no one has the power in and of themselves to put their trust in God. See, it all begins there. If you think that sin has done something bad, but not so bad, and that there's still some goodness left in me, and that little bitty corner of my heart that has been protected from sin is able on its own to choose God, well then you don't, you don't need the rest of this system. You don't need Jesus to come and make you alive. But the problem is the Bible. The Bible describes us as dead. Remember that. And dead people don't do anything, let alone choose God. And furthermore, the Bible describes our minds as darkened, opposed when we see the things of God we call them foolish the Bible describes us as bound enslaved deaf unable to hear unable to see and so apart from divine intervention none of us 
can even see and understand the grace and mercy of God, let alone desire to choose it because our hearts are deceitful. And then, so from there, we looked at unconditional election, which says that God chooses people for salvation, not based on anything they could do, because total depravity says we can do nothing, but it's based purely on his unconditional and sovereign choice. See, if total depravity highlights our need for salvation, unconditional election highlights who God will save. But notice so far that in these two doctrines, no one is actually saved yet. There's a need for salvation, and then God deciding to whom he will save, but no one's actually is saved. Election marks out who will be saved, but it doesn't actually accomplish redemption, and that's what we're looking at today, this doctrine of perfect atonement, the work of God actually saving us. So here's our working definition, and we'll have it on the screen. The death of Jesus Christ secured and achieved the redemption of every person given to God the Son by God the Father. The atonement does not merely make salvation possible, but it actually and effectually accomplishes God's intended purpose, salvation for God's chosen people. When we talk about limited atonement, or we talk about perfect atonement, we're saying this is what God did in the death of Christ. That his death really did secure and achieve the redemption that God sought to accomplish. It actually does something, not merely creates the possibility for it. So if you would, let's keep this definition on the screen for a while as we unpack this definition. So as we begin, let me just remind you, when we say the word atonement, what that means. Now there's some words in Christianity that we could leave or take. This is not one of them. This is one, the atonement is a very important Christian word that we need to understand what's actually happening and going on. So in God's plan of redemption, God the Father sent God the Son into the world who took on flesh. That's Christmas, right? That's Jesus in the manger. So that in the person of Jesus Christ, he would identify with his people and act as their representative and substitute. So here's what that means. Remember, humanity has two great problems as it relates to sin. The first thing that sin does is it it causes us to fail to live the perfectly righteous life. And therefore, all of us are unrighteous and unholy. So we've all failed to live the life that God demands. We've all failed in that. Secondly, because of our sin, we're guilty and condemned. And therefore, we rightly deserve to pay the penalty for our sins. It's not merely that we're sinful, but that sin has consequences. It's a logical necessity that we should have to pay for the penalty of our sins. And God is just for us to pay that penalty. But Jesus came to save us from that reality. That's what he's saving us from. He's saving us from our sins. So here's how we do it. Here's how he does it. First, Jesus was born without the plague of sin because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember that when the angel said, Mary, do not be alarmed. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She wasn't unfaithful for what is growing in her womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, it does not come from the line of Adam like you and I do. 
He's born apart from that. So he's born without sin. That's why the virgin birth and the immaculate conception are so important. So he's born sinless. And not only is he born sinless, but he lives a perfectly sinless life. The only human being who's ever done that. He lives a life of perfect righteousness so that on the cross he's able to give us that life. He is every day of his life as he perfectly lives out the law of God. As he perfectly lives out a life surrendered to God in perfect worship to him. He's he's building up a credit that he's one day going to give to us. Because none of us have a righteousness accrued on our own. So he is building it up every day of his life. Storing it up so that he can give it to us. So this solves our problem of unrighteousness, right? We're all unrighteous. We've lived a life of unrighteousness. We've built up a credit of unrighteousness. So here's what happens on the cross. Jesus says, hey, I'll take your unrighteousness and put it on me. And then I'll give you my credited righteousness and give it to you. So his death is a substitutionary penalty-bearing death. That's what the atonement is. The atonement means Jesus suffers for us in our place. So every time you see a cross, you should be thinking, that should have been me. I was supposed to be on that cross, not him. He didn't deserve to be on that cross, but he went there for me. He suffers for us in our place. He endures the penalty that we deserved in order that we would be free from condemnation and guilt. That's what the atonement is. And so when believers are joined to Jesus in salvation, our two great problems are solved. The righteousness we need but don't have is given to us as a gift and the penalty that we deserve to die is placed on Jesus Instead, he solves our problems so that we are free from guilt and condemnation. You notice, in all of that, believers are saved not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. So when Christians say redemption or atonement, that's what we're talking about. So what limited atonement or perfect atonement seeks to answer is, whose punishment did he bear? Everyone agrees on what I just said. Every, every Bible-believing Christian about what the atonement is, everyone would go, yes, that's exactly what the gospel is. What limited atonement is saying, who did Jesus die for? All the stuff you just talked about, the, the, the solving our problems, who did he do that for? That's what limited atonement is seeking to answer. So now there's three options as we think about this question. Who did Jesus die for? Option number one, that Christ died to save Everyone, every single person who's ever lived. This is what's called universalism. And if your doctrine radar is going off, that's a good thing. Because this is capital H heresy, okay? He did not die to save every single person without exception regardless of faith. That's, the do- that's, that's known as universalism, which is basically like, listen, guys, here's the secret. Doesn't matter what you do, everyone's going to be saved. That's universalism. It's completely unbiblical, and no Orthodox Christian believes this. Okay? We can't go with option number one. Option number two. Jesus died to save no one in particular. This is what's known as Arminianism. This would also be called unlimited atonement, meaning there's no limits to the atonement. Jesus died to save 
everyone in the sense that he secures potential salvation for anyone who would believe. So his death in that sense isn't particular or defined to a set group of people. So his death makes it possible that if anyone, that anyone can be saved if and only if that person chooses or decides to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. So for the Arminian position, Jesus makes salvation possible, but you have to make it effectual by placing your faith in Christ based on your decision. So Jesus' death is out there as a potential reality, and then when you make that decision to place your faith in Christ, that potential becomes actual. But this is where we have to remember the doctrine of total depravity, right? Is anyone actually able to choose Christ apart from God's divine intervention? And the answer is no, they're not. That's why this position is simply untenable, which brings us to position number three. Christ died to save his people. His people. This is the Reformed position or the Calvinist position. We believe that Jesus died not to create the possibility of salvation, but to actually save his people from their sins. So limited atonement says that Christ's redeeming work was definite in particular in design and completely effectual for accomplishment. Meaning every single person Christ intended to save is saved. Every single person. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was intended for a specific group of people. And that his atoning death completely accomplished that intended purpose. There's a great book called The Five Points of Calvinism. It's a little bit longer than the one we have on the resource table. Um, and, And in that book, Steele and Thomas write this. The salvation which Christ earned for his people includes everything involved in bringing them into a right relationship with God. Including the gifts of faith and repentance. Christ did not die simply to make it possible for God to pardon sinners. Neither does God leave it up to sinners to decide whether or not Christ's work will be effective. On the contrary, all for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved infallibly. Redemption, therefore, was designed to bring to pass God's purpose of election. Now let's talk about this word limited again. I know we don't like this word. We cringe at the idea of limits. That's why some have changed it to uh, definite atonement or or, or particular uh, redemption. But when we say limited, here's what we're saying. We're using it in a way that we would say a devoted husband's marital love is limited to his bride. Now think about that. Does that change the value of his love? If a husband says, listen, my love, all the love I have to give is devoted to you, my bride. We would look at that and go, well, that's right and proper. In fact, we would say that makes it more valuable, not less valuable. See, limit doesn't always mean less. It's directed. It's focused. It's purposeful. It's limited in that it's particularly and definitely focused on his wife and in the same manner God's love is particular and definitive and it's limited to the bride of Christ it's not limited in its value it's not limited in its effect but here's the reality unless you're a universalist 
everyone in one sense limits the atonement, right? In one sense, the Arminian, who believes that Christ has set up the possibility for salvation, is limiting the power and the effectiveness of the atonement, right? Because not everyone will be saved. And so Christ's death is not as effectual as it might be. The cross doesn't save everyone. And so the blood of Christ was shed, and yet some of that blood will not be applied or used. But the Calvinist of the Reformed position limits the extent of the atonement in that uh, no, no blood is wasted. Every drop will be applied to those for whom it was attended. Now, no position limits the value of the atonement. My Arminian brothers and sisters and my Calvinist brothers and sisters all believe that the, the cross is of infinite value. So here's the issue in a nutshell. Did Jesus die to offer the possibility of salvation or to actually save his people from their sins? The Arminian position says that Christ's death was sufficient for all but effective for no one in particular. He makes it possible and then it's on you to apply that atonement through your act of faith by which it then makes the atonement effective. And that some for whom Christ died will ultimately never benefit from the atonement because they fail to believe. What this church believes, what the Reformed tradition believes, is that while Christ's death is of limitless value, he had a defined purpose in mind. He actually died for and atoned for the sins of his elect people. He died for the sins of his people in particular, not for everyone without exception. And that makes his death 100% effective for those whom he intended to save. So that all of those people Christ had in mind as he sat there on the cross will eventually believe and inherit eternal life so that not one drop of his blood is wasted. See, at the end of the day, what perfect atonement is saying is that Jesus will be true to his name. You remember what his name means? For he will save his people from their sins. The angel said, name him Jesus. Why? For he will save who? His people from their sins. Now that we have a good working understanding of what we mean by limited atonement, let me show you how Scripture defends this position. Let's start in everyone's favorite book, the book of Leviticus. This is usually where in like late January, early February, you fall off the Bible reading plan because you get to Leviticus and you're like, what is going on here? Now, if you go to Leviticus 16... It's one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, I think. Because the way it points to Christ is unbelievable. Now this chapter highlights the day of atonement. And it points to this ultimate day of atonement when we come to the death of Christ. But it's important to understand what is going on on this day. So after there's, you know, if you're reading through Leviticus 16, the high priest has to prepare himself. There has to be um, uh, sacrifices made just just for his own sin in order to be the mediator of, of this day of atonement. And after all of that preparation is made, he takes two goats, okay? The first goat is the sin offering goat. So here's what happened. Leviticus 16, verse 15. 
Then he, that's the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in the front of the mercy seat. So inside this holy of holies is this mercy seat. It's where atonement for sins is made. The high priest slaughters the goat. He captures the blood in a basin and he goes into this holy of holies. It's the only day of the year he's allowed to go in there. And he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, which is making atonement for sin. The first goat is slaughtered. It's the blood is a sin offering for who? Who is this goat dying for? Well, it's the people of God, right? It's not all peoples. It's the people of Israel. And then the priest takes the second goat. Remember him? He was hanging out over here. Leviticus 16, 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands... I want you to picture this in your mind right now, okay? He takes both his hands on the head of this live goat. And he confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. All their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. And send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Then the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the, go free, let the goat go free in the wilderness. So did you see that? He's like face to face with this goat, holding him by the, by the head. And he begins to confess the sins of all the people onto this goat. And we hear that and go, that is weird. But it's modeling something. Do you see the transfer the high priest is the representative of all the people of God. He is, he is standing in place of the people as their representative. Then what does he do? He confesses all of their sins onto this goat. There's a transfer happening. Do you see that? A substitute is happening. This goat has never sinned before. You know why? Goats aren't humans. But all the sins of the people are put on this goat. And then there's a person ready to go. He's like the goat wanderer. You know, he's just out there ready to go. And that goat, with all the sins of the people, is released out into the wilderness. Now, at first glance, we hear that and go, huh, the goat gets to go free. That's cool. No, 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 no. The goat goes out there to die. Don't think wilderness like this beautiful forest where the goat gets a second shot at life. This is death. He's going to be eaten, killed, starved. That goat goes to die. Now I go into all this detail just to highlight the whole sacrificial system is set up to pay for the sins of a particular people. Do you see that? Whose sins are placed on these goats? The sins of the people of God. Now, are these sacrifices making the atonement possible? No. They're making it actual. What happens on that day actually does something. It, it atones for their sins for that year. It, it's not that, that they might one day be saved from the, He's saving them from their sins, atoning their sins right now. And it's not theoretical sins for a theoretical people, but actual sins for an actual people. Now, do you know nobody reads the whole Old Testament and comes to an Arminian understanding of the atonement. Nobody. No one reads it and goes, I think all of that was for everybody. Everyone reads that and goes, that's for 
the people of God. The whole sacrificial system is extremely particular and definite. It's for a particular people, and it actually achieves atonement. So we have to take that Old Testament groundwork as we step into the New Testament, and that's exactly what happens in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and verse 12. Christ entered once for all into the holy places. Now remember, the high priest who had now cleansed himself with the blood of bulls, right? And he's going into the Holy of Holies, offering the sacrifices. Now the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, guess what Jesus did? He acts as our high priest. Remember how the high priest was the representative for all the people? That's what Jesus is doing. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but there's blood. Whose blood is it? His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that all those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The whole book of Hebrews is this. Jesus is the truer and better everything in the Old Testament. Chapter 9 is how he's the truer and better sacrifice. He's the truer and better high priest. He walks in, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And what does he do? Secures an eternal redemption. Didn't say, and he makes it possible that we might be saved. It says he secured it. It's done. That's why he's the mediator of a new covenant. And a death has occurred. And what does that death do? It redeems them. Past it redeems them. Does it potentially redeem them? It actually redeems them. He is the fulfillment, Jesus, of everything the Old Testament pointed for. And Jesus offers his life to secure to achieve the eternal redemption of his people. Not all people, his people. All who are called receive the promised inheritance. Did you see that in verse 15? He's the mediator of a new covenant. For who? All those who are called may receive the promised benefits. All those who are called. His death actually achieves something. It secures the redemption of his people for those who are called. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now think about this. Put your theological thinking caps on for a second. It just said that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins. So Whose sins did Jesus bear that day on the cross? Ours. But who is the ours? Because whosever sin that Jesus bore that day, that's whose sins he's paying the penalty for. And I don't mean theoretically. I mean on that day, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was uh, uh, hung on the cross, he bore somebody's sins that day. Actually, on that day. Whose sins were placed on Christ? If he is dying for the sin of every single person, 
then guess what? Every single person's sins would be forgiven. Someone's sins were put on Jesus on that day. And if it was everybody's sins, then look at me. Then it would be completely unjust for God to have Christ suffer and pay for the sins of everybody and then to have you pay for those sins again. You see what I'm saying? If Jesus dies for everybody, then everyone needs to be saved. But we all know that not everyone is saved. So it can't be that all people's sins were placed on Christ that day because it would make God unjust to have Christ suffer for their sins once and for them to have to suffer for those sins later. It's like double jeopardy. You see what I'm saying? It would be unjust to have sins atoned for twice. But Peter is telling us that Jesus bore the sins of the redeemed on the cross. All those for whom God intended to save, those sins were placed on Christ that day. Just like the sacrificial animals bore the sins of the people of God, Jesus bears the sins of his people in the New Testament. His work on the cross is particular and definite. Now, let's look at John 10, and we'll pick up the conversation in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, so he he willingly lays down his life for the sheep because that's what a good shepherd does, right? They, they put themselves in harm's way for the sake of the sheep. And then he tells us for whom he lays down his life. Who is it for? The sheep. He doesn't say, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and the goats and the wolves. No, he says, I lay it down for the sheep. And then in verse 14, he clarifies whose those sheep are. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. The good shepherd knows his sheep, and what do his sheep do? They know him. And Jesus is describing, he's saying, look, I've come, there's some who are already in the flock of God, but there's others, and I am gathering them together to create one big flock, one big people of God, and I will be their shepherd. And Jesus says it's for this reason that the Father is so proud of him, and the Father loves the Son, because he would willingly lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus is creating one flock, and he dies for that flock. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Don't miss this, verse 26, but you do not believe, why? You are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The sheep that Jesus lays down his life for as the good shepherd, he now calls 
my sheep. Do you see how as this, this conversation goes on, the particularity of these sheep becomes more apparent. He tells the Jews gathered around them, by the way, you guys don't believe because you're not my sheep. Did you notice that? He didn't say you don't believe because you just need more convincing. He doesn't say you don't believe because you just need to get some things in order in your life. He doesn't say you don't believe because you need to see more miracles. He said you don't believe. Here's the fundamental reason why you will not believe. Because you're not my sheep. Do you see the logical implications of that? If you're not his sheep, you won't believe. If you are his sheep, what? You will believe. His sheep know his voice. His sheep hear and respond. And Jesus gives his life for those sheep. And he gives them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of his hand. The Father has given them to the Son. And they are secured. Do you see how so far all the details and points of our definition of limited atonement have come out from Scripture? The death of Jesus Christ secured and achieved the redemption of every person given to uh, God the Son by God the Father. The atonement does not merely make salvation possible, but it actually and effectually accomplishes God's intended purpose, which was salvation for his chosen people. Jesus just said that God the Father gives him the sheep. And then he lays down his life for them. And his death doesn't make salvation possible, but it actually makes it real. He gives them eternal life. They'll never perish. They'll hear his voice. They'll follow him. See, Jesus, as the good shepherd, doesn't lay down his life indiscriminately with the hope that some might follow him. He lays down his life specifically for those who would follow him. Mark 10, 45. Jesus said, for even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Christ didn't merely make a ransom offer. His death actually was the ransom. And it was completely effective for the many to whom it applies. Just think about that word picture there as a ransom. A ransom price is not theoretical. It's actual. You have to actually pay the ransom price in order for the ransom to be paid. His life, his blood was the ransom price. So when he gave up his life, he was actually paying the ransom for his people. He wasn't saying, hey, I'll give you a, a ransom IOU. I'm good for it, trust me. He was actually, there was a transaction that happened on the cross. He was paying the ransom price. But Jesus didn't pay the ransom for everyone. Because if so, they would also be freed from sin and slavery. The ransom price was paid to those whom it was attended. Ephesians 5.25. Paul tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for who? Her. Who is the her? The church. Jesus died for his bride, the church. Though the offer of salvation is made to all, his death actually achieves the salvation for his bride, the church. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul's speaking here. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, that's Jesus, obtained with his own blood. 
Luke is recording the words of the Apostle Paul. He's speaking on the shores of Miletus to his fellow elders in Ephesus. He's about to go away. And he says, elders, when you go back to Ephesus, pay careful attention to your life and pay careful attention to the flock. Why? He says, because the flock that has been entrusted to you has been obtained by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus was not merely given to create the possibility of the church, but was given to actually create the church, to obtain them. See, the church, the people of God were enslaved to sin, and Christ came to pay the ransom price to obtain them, deliver them out of that slavery. John 13, 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. You know, when we did the, we, went, we preached the gospel of John, this became my favorite verse in all the whole gospel. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who did he love? His own. Jesus gave up his life. To accomplish the purpose for which he came. To love his own to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is one of those verses where Jesus says exactly why he came. He came to seek and save the lost. Not to create the possibility of salvation. But to actually secure it. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. This is the atonement in one verse. His death is actually doing something on the cross. That's what Paul is saying here. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin and he so identifies with our sin that Paul would say he became sin who knew no sin. And what it means is it's actually, something's happening on the cross. He's taking on our sin, the sin of his people, and giving us his righteousness. That's why we sing the hymn, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus suffered for our sins in our place to actually reconcile us to God. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself, what? A people for his own, who, his own possession who were zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself up to redeem us from our sin to create a people for his own possession. Here's one more. Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Paul is saying that when Jesus died, he died for us and in his death he secured for us our salvation. Now, in real time, it has to be applied 
when we believe. So at the moment of our conversion, the Holy Spirit applies that finished work. But it's a work that has been done. The procurement, the accomplishment, the achievement of redemption has already taken place. And that's what's happening on the cross. It accomplishes redemption, not merely creates the possibility of redemption. Now, friends, there are dozens and dozens more passages we could examine. But for the sake of time, we have to wrap up this defense. This is the redemption we have in Christ. Jesus does not go up to the cross on that day, finish the work of redemption, and say, listen, guys, I've done my part. I laid down my life. I created this really great system by which you can be saved. Instead, he goes to the cross and he says, I was pierced for your transgressions. I was crushed for your iniquities. I have purchased with my blood men uh, and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus goes to the cross and says, I myself bore your sins in my body on that tree so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. His wounds don't make healing available. His wounds heal you. Limited atonement, perfect atonement is saying that Christ did more on the cross. He didn't just make it possible. He made it actual and he secured our redemption. He didn't die as a potential substitute. He died as an actual one. And he succeeded in his mission to gather his flock so that we might be his people. Friends, what limited atonement is saying, what perfect atonement is saying, is that not one drop of Christ's blood was shed in vain. Now let's apply this to our lives. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can be assured that when Jesus died, he died specifically for you. It's a personal love. It's not a hypothetical love. In other words, perfect atonement means that God's love is personal, not general. Martin Luther said that the sweetness of the gospel lies in the personal pronouns. And he was looking at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and he could not get over these personal pronouns. And as Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the Son of God gave us life for you specifically, not you generally. Have you noticed how much our culture talks a big game about loving people? Like we need to just love people. Like we need to love humanity. But you know how easy it is to love people in general? Because I don't have to do anything. I can just talk about loving people. But where does love get hard? When it's personal and specific and actual. Like when it really actually takes your time. When it really actually costs you money. That's when love becomes real. It's easy to love people in general. It's another thing to love people particularly. And limited atonement is saying that God loved us particularly. Real love requires something from you in a way that general love does not. In the same way, what limited atonement, perfect atonement is saying 
is that Jesus died for his own. So he had you and me in mind when he went to the cross. And that kind of personal, not just general hypothetical love, is meant to change the way that we respond to him. Number two, perfect atonement means our salvation is assured. It's secured. Because Jesus actually accomplished redemption, we can rest in the finished work of Christ. One of the most common questions I get as a pastor is, but how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know for sure? And I point people right back here. Jesus already secured your redemption. It's not contingent on you. It's your failures and missteps all along the way do not put your redemption in jeopardy. It's already done. It's already done. It's done. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It was Spurgeon who said, we say that Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. Your salvation, brother and sister, is secure. That's what the perfect atonement means. And finally, number three, perfect atonement means we have motivation for evangelism and mission. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, the praising Jesus, and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What John is saying there is that Jesus died to save all kinds of people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Diversity was God's design. And we know that Jesus is gathering his flock. That's what he told us in John chapter 10. And he calls us to be a part of his redemptive work through evangelism and mission. I never understand why people look at Calvinism and go, so what's the point of evangelism and mission? It's the other way around. It gives us a point to our evangelism and mission because we know that God is going to redeem people. We know he's going to. We know it works. So tell people about the gospel indiscriminately. Our call is to sow seed liberally, knowing that God will ensure that everyone for whom Christ died will hear and believe in the gospel. You know why that should put you at rest? Because you don't have to worry about being convincing. You don't have to worry about having the perfectly articulated argument. You can walk away if someone doesn't believe and not feel any guilt at all. It had nothing to do with you. You don't have to worry about the words you're going to say. Because ultimately people aren't convinced by your words anyway. How are people saved? Because Christ saves them. He makes them alive. He joins them to himself. He accomplishes the work of redemption from beginning to the end. So brother and sister, preach the gospel and trust that Jesus will be true to his name and save his people from their sins. Let's pray.